Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when he had ended all his sayings, just referring to the Lord in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Most likely he was now over in Caesarea Maritime, which is a city over on the coast. It would have been quite a journey from Capernaum. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, referring to the centurion. And then the leaders, the elders of the Jews, reported to Jesus about this centurion by saying this, For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, so he had traveled quite a ways, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Explaining why he sent the elders of the Jews to go and make this request. He didn't feel like he was worthy to even approach Jesus. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. You just speak the word only, Jesus, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to this servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And he spoke the word, and the servant was healed. I'd like to speak this morning on this subject, the salvation of a certain centurion. The salvation of a certain centurion. Would you bow your heads and pray? Lord, we are thankful for your blessings and for your anointing. We're thankful for your presence, thankful for people that have made the sacrifice to gather in your house today. I pray, Lord, that their time would be redeemed by the Word of God lodging in their hearts and minds and the Spirit of the Lord just surrounding us like a sea and lifting us up to a higher place. I thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy that draws us together. And I pray, God, that your Word would change us in our minds and in our hearts today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. The salvation of a certain centurion. Luke describes him as a certain centurion. Interesting enough because Luke not only wrote the book that is titled in his name, but he also wrote the book of Acts where we also read about another centurion in the 10th chapter. It's interesting when we think about a centurion having great faith, you have to realize and remember that a Roman centurion was a professional executioner. A Roman centurion was a killing machine. The Roman army, the, the legions of Roman armies, their 
Their forces had conquered the then-known world. They were a fierce bunch, to say the least. They were not people that were timid. They were not people that were fearful. They were people that intimidated others. They were warriors. And you did not rise to the level of being a centurion unless you were particularly skilled and had accomplished all of your necessary assignments as a soldier in the Roman army. You had been elevated up to the point of becoming a centurion, person who was over at least a hundred people, an individual who oversaw the execution of numerous people in numerous places. Suffice it all to say that if a centurion can be saved, then any of us can be saved also. If a Roman centurion in the time of the ministry of Jesus in this Holy Land area could be saved, then you and I, regardless of our past, regardless of our mistakes, regardless of the wrong choices, wrong decisions, and wrong turns that we may have taken in life, if God can save a Roman centurion, He can save you and I he can save that husband that you don't think cares about God. He can save that wayward child who may, may not be serving God this morning, but God is still working on their heart. He can save that relative. He can save that friend, that co-worker. It matters not what water is under the bridge. There is a God, hallelujah, that can separate the seas and create dry ground to walk on. I'm so glad anybody can be saved. If you don't believe that, just look at your own life. How many of you this morning, maybe we should vote, because I think it would be overwhelming. How many of you are amazed this morning that God saved you? Would you raise your hand? <laughs> That's enough evidence right there, beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm amazed that God loves me. I'm amazed that God allows me to preach the gospel. I'm amazed that God allows us to sit in heavenly places. I'm amazed that God allows us to come together and to sing praises that glorify Him and allow us to be able to feel His anointing and His power and His love and His spirit and to know that we walk among angels, to know that God, hallelujah, has redeemed us and saved us. We are a privileged people. That's why we shout. We don't shout hallelujah to bring attention to ourselves. We shout hallelujah because God's been good to us. We shout because we are thankful and appreciative. We don't deserve to be here. But God has brought us a mighty long way. Thank you, Jesus. But in studying this Roman centurion, it appears that there is a path that this Roman centurion followed that I believe could perhaps be a path for each and every one of us. The very first thing that we notice as we read this story, this brief account of this centurion, in this particular passage, his name is not given. It just describes him as a certain centurion. But we know that based on the report from the Jews, and you have to remember the Jews hated the Romans. They were occupying their land. For them to give a good report of a Roman centurion, there, there had been significant acts that had been 
done by this centurion so that there was this much favor with Jewish leaders. One of the things that we read in this account is that he built them a synagogue. Now, just a few weeks ago, we were over in Israel, and we were in Capernaum, and we were at this synagogue. In fact, they may even have some pictures that they're going to show you, but as we walked around and looked at this synagogue, they had different uh, plaques and different um, things that were um, written that sort of told about this story, and they believed that this was the um, synagogue that this Roman centurion built right here in the city of Capernaum. I think there's uh, maybe some more. Oh, yeah, well, look at there. <laughs> there's the Sister Myers and, and little Miss Sophia in full tourist mode. Brother and Sister Richie. <laughs> and so as we walked around this, uh, this synagogue, they, they had different little information areas where you could, you could learn more about it. And so as we walked around and we looked more and more at this synagogue, we found that there was some insight that we were given um, reason to understand, and it became very interesting to us, and I, I want to share it with you today, and that is this. The Jewish historians and the, the Jewish leaders, we actually confirmed this with our guide when we were there, they believe that the Roman centurion that we read about in the book of Luke is the same Roman centurion who is named in Acts 10 as being Cornelius. They believe that this was the same individual. Now, I've read many times in the book of Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius as being a centurion who was a faithful man and the Bible said he gave much alms to the people and he was a devout man. He prayed with his family and a heavenly angel appeared to him and told him to send men to Joppa, which is a little city over there on the coast, and to go to the Simon the Tanner's house because there was a man by the name of Peter there and, and asked for him and asked him if he would come and preach the gospel to you. And of course, um, Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, was up on top of that house and he was he was resting uh, late morning, and he was just sort of thinking about the goodness of God, and God gave him a vision. And in the vision, he explained to Peter that anybody could be saved, that it wasn't just for the Jews, but that Gentiles also could be saved. And so, as Peter was thinking about this vision and thinking about what God was teaching him, there was a knock on the door downstairs, and it was these two men coming from Cornelius's house, the centurion named now Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And so they asked if he would come and Peter said he would and some Jews went with him. And, and the Bible says in Acts chapter 10, it's an amazing account of this story, but the Bible says in Acts 10 that while Peter was preaching to Cornelius, the Roman centurion in his house, that the Holy Ghost fell on them. And they knew that they received the Holy Ghost because the Jews, even the ones that went down there with Peter, sort of a verification committee, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, which meant that this was part of the evidence of being spirit-filled. And so Peter said, can these be baptized which have received the Spirit as well as we? In other words, it was the same sign. And so they were all baptized in Jesus' name. So we know that this centurion 
found salvation. But what led to that point? Well, first of all, I'd like to try to establish what I think is further proof that the man that we read about in our text in Luke is also the man that we read about in Acts chapter 10. One of the things that we find when we read about this is that in Acts 10, it also describes him as a certain centurion. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. The next thing that we read that would match what we read in our text, that this being the same person in verse 2, it says that he was a devout man. A devout man. Now, when, when you read the words that he was a devout man, in Scripture that meant that he adhered to the Jewish faith. We go on to then read that he gave much alms to the people. Well, in the text we read that this centurion built a synagogue in the city of Capernaum. So he was a devout man. He was one that gave much alms. And the Bible says that he prayed to God always. A devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Well, when you compare that centurion, I asked our guide, Edo, when, when we were in Israel, how do we know that Cornelius was that same centurion in Acts 10? And he said, well, first of all, it wasn't like a lot of centurions were getting saved. I said, okay, I, I can accept that. But all you have to do is have two get saved, and these are two different people. Well, then he started walking us through all of these different comparisons just by Scripture, and then also gave us some more historical evidence. Suffice it to say that I came away from that exchange believing that the centurion that we read about in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, did not just start his journey to salvation by praying with his house and sending two men to Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. But it started a lot earlier now, folks, this is something that I want to encourage you about today. I don't believe that a person just wakes up on this day in the middle of June 2017 and says, I think I'll be saved today and comes to a church. I believe that there's a lot of things that take place in our path before our heart is ready to say, Lord, I surrender, not my will, but thy will be done. There is a process. There is a path. And let me just say this for those of you that are praying for unsaved loved ones. It's oftentimes invisible to the rest of us. But there is a heart that is changing. And there is a God that is working on the inside. And there are things that are going on that's leading us to salvation. Now, if you don't mind, if you got a few moments this morning, follow this little journey with me. The first thing that I want to call to your attention about this certain centurion is that he served. He served. He built them a synagogue. He was faithful in his line of service as a military man, or he wouldn't have been promoted to being a centurion. And by his own account, he was under authority. It's hard to be saved when you're constantly in rebellion. 
in rebellion against society, in rebellion against the laws of the land, in rebellion against your parents, in rebellion against your friends, in rebellion against every authority figure. It's hard to stop on a dive and say, God, I surrender all. At some point, you have to start saying, you know what? It may be good for me to follow the laws of the land. Hopefully we get to that point before we stand in front of a judge at the circuit court level. Hopefully it's, it's before we see flashing lights in our rearview mirror. Hopefully it's before there's a lot of different disasters in our life. But everything in life sometimes brings us to the point of learning valuable lessons. And one is that there is authority that comes when you submit yourself to authority. Now, the reason that this man had such great faith was because he recognized the chain of command. He said, I am a man under authority. And because I'm under authority, I have authority. I say to this man, go, and he goes. I say to this man, come, and he comes. I say to this man, do this, and he do it. And guess what? I recognize that that authority... It's not based upon who I am, but it's based upon the position that I have put myself in. Because I am under authority, I have authority. Ladies and gentlemen, it would be good for you and I to recognize that especially in the spirit realm, you only have authority based on how you have placed yourself under authority. There's a lot of examples in the book of Acts, seven sons of Sceva and, and Simon, uh, you know, the sorcerer and others who just wanted this power, who just wanted this authority. They didn't want to submit themselves to anybody or to anything, but they just wanted to buy it or they wanted to force it. And guess what happened when they tried to do that? You know what the enemy said? Paul, I know. Peter, I know. Jesus, I know, but who are you? I'm going to tell you something. When the spirit world says, who are you? Let me interpret what that means. That's the spirit world saying, you have no authority over us. That's the spirit world saying, you are in over your head. And you know what happened to those seven sons of Sceva? They all ripped off their clothes and went running out of the house naked. That's how you can know the devil has got you when you rip off all your clothes and start running around. I knew that wouldn't get much, but that's the Bible anyhow. I had a pastoral spirit come on me right there. Does it bother anybody other than me when people half naked try to tell about how God has saved them? Let me just give you a little something here. When God saves you, He makes you want to put on clothes. <laughs> I ain't gonna have no church tell me what to do. I ain't gonna have no preacher tell me what to do. <laughs> I don't care what the Bible says. 
There's a spirit that comes on you. Whenever God puts his Holy Spirit in you, you know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to talk right, live right, look right. Go to the right places, have the right friends, lift up your voice, magnify God, listen to Christian music, watch the right stuff. It gives you a spirit of servanthood that says, God, you've been so good to me. I want to do something. I want to build a synagogue. I want to go to Haiti. I want to give in missions. I want to bless somebody. I want to help somebody. That's what happens when God's spirit gets in your heart. He was faithful. He was under authority. And the reason that the Lord said he had such great faith is because the centurion recognized, and this is something that's really, it, it changed my whole life when the Lord gave me this revelation back when I was just a young evangelist in my 20s. The thing that made this such great faith was that the centurion recognized that faith, which folks, faith is the trigger point. In everything that you ask for God, healing, the Holy Ghost, miracles, blessings, finance, it doesn't matter what it is. Faith is the trigger point that releases God's favor in your life, okay? And here's what this man knew about faith. This man, because he understood authority, he understood that faith was authority-based. It wasn't based on the touch. See, many people felt like if Jesus could touch them, they would be healed. And because that was their point of reference for their faith, that's what was required for the person to be healed. But this man said, I'm not worthy that you would come into my house. In fact, I wasn't even worthy. I didn't even feel worthy to make the request of you. But I am a man under authority. So I understand authority. And if you will but speak the word, my servant shall be made whole. He said, I recognize that you don't have to touch. All you've got to do is just give the command. I would to God that we'd get a revelation in this house that if you get under the power and the anointing and the authority of God, you don't have to live with addictions. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in doubt and in pain and in sorrow and in regret and in guilt and in condemnation. But you can stand and say, I receive the deliverance of God in the name of Jesus. I shall be made whole. She cut that up. But that path starts through serving. Now here's what I believe. I believe that when people do good, that heaven takes notice of it. Long before they're saved. I believe that when people do good, you've got to understand, a lot of people, they don't know how to be saved. They haven't been exposed to what you and I have. Their opinion of what church is, Pentecost is, is maybe based on something they've seen on television or based on a story maybe somebody told them. When I went to law school, my first year of law school, the students in my class used to ask me crazy questions. They would say, you're a preacher? And I would say, yes. Pentecostal preacher? Like, yes. They said, do you handle snakes? <laughs> what? 
Why would I do that? I'm one of these crazy people that don't even believe in good snakes. I kill all snakes. Good, bad, spotted. I can't try to figure out if it's got triangles or something on it while it's... I kill all of them. The good, the bad, the ugly. I chop off their heads with a shovel and I scoop it all up and I throw it in the road and I let a thousand cars run over it. <laughs> then I remember one girl in my, my law school class said, do you cut the heads off of chickens? I'm like, do you think we run like a slaughterhouse, like we work for Tyson Chicken? Where do you people hear these things? They didn't know. But I tell you what, I've met a lot of people that did a lot of good. And I think heaven takes notice of that. When someone has compassion for someone and they're, they're willing to reach out and do good. There's a whole bunch of people, folks, that may not be saved right now. But in their heart, they're compassionate. They're wanting to help situation in Haiti. They're wanting to work in third world countries. I'm glad that the Bill and Melinda Gates with all their money are trying to solve AIDS in Africa and, and trying to help deal with poverty and famine. And I think that's honorable. I think heaven recognizes that. I'm not saying they're saved, but I'm, I'm saying that there's something in the heart of a human being that's open to help people that are in a state of plight. That that's honorable. This centurion, maybe he didn't know what to do. He was raised in Rome. He was a killing machine. But he built him a synagogue. He gave much alms to the people. He was doing what he knew to do. He was serving. And I don't know, but I think that laid out a path. I just want to say this to you. If you're praying for an unsaved loved one and they're not in this church yet, you ought to rejoice every time you see them just have an open heart. Because they're on a path. I said they're on a path. They may not be there yet, but they're building a synagogue. They're giving much alms. They've got a heart to help people. I've come to tell you that heaven's going to take notice of that. And there's not one idle deed that God doesn't record. Hmm. And then that's further confirmed as we read more and more about this journey that this certain centurion was on. Not only did he, he serve, but he also sent. This is also common to Luke 7 and Acts 10, which I think is further proof that this was the same individual. He sent for Jesus in Luke 7 through servants and then in Acts 10 he sends for Peter by sending two men to Joppa he took action when it comes to salvation ladies and gentlemen you have to take action you have to move towards Christ there has to be some initiation Salvation is not passive. I saw uh, a, on a church sign uh, here in our town, 
a couple of days ago. I saw a sign in front of the church, and this is what it said. When it comes to salvation, religion says do, and Jesus says done. And I rode by that, and I thought, when it comes to salvation, Jesus says done, but religion says do. And I thought, that's not exactly accurate, not according to Scripture. There has to be some action on the part of the recipient. If you looked at the miracles, you'll see Barnabas had to cry out from the wayside. The lame man in Acts chapter 3 had to ask for help. The leper, Naaman, had to dip seven times in the Jordan River. There had to be some initiation. Rather than just saying, I'm going to just sit here, God, and if you really love me, you'll save me. Some people spend their whole life living life that way. How many of you know if you want to get a job, you're going to have to apply for one? If somebody sends you an email or knocks on your door and says, we want to give you a job where you make $100,000 a year, you don't have to have any education, you can work from your home. How many of you know that there ought to be a red flag to go off? A buzzer or a bell or something. I was reading about these people over in Orlando. I probably don't even have time to get into this, but there's all kind of scams going on on the internet. But I was reading about how people that buy timeshares are always trying to sell them because they can't keep up with the maintenance fees and all that. And um, so they, they list, you know, that they want to sell. And there's these companies, and it was a huge network. I think it was based all over Orlando. They would buy literally shopping centers and set up massive call centers. And, and what they would do is they would tell people they would start some you know, corporation, you know, investment, securities, unlimited. And, uh, you know, you can do that and file that and be incorporated in Florida um, for 200 bucks. So they would start a corporation, and then they would get these lists of names of all these people that are trying to sell, because that becomes public domain, their uh, timeshare. And so they would start calling these people and say, we have, a, we have a buyer for, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And they would start running a scam, and they're going to pay $20,000 for your timeshare. And people get all excited. And they walk them through it all, and they, they basically then say, um, okay, we're going to get it set up for such and such day. We're going to have to close it. They, they even say there's going to be a verification call. They, they have letters with a bunch of legalese, you know, a stop all this and that and blah, blah, blah. They make it look all really official. But then here's the catch. They say, now we need you to put on your credit card $2,000 where you'll pay. When you're selling something and if for some reason you have to pay, there ought to be another warning light right there. And, and we just need you to put $2,000, and that, what that's going to do is pay for the title work and get all that, and, and, you know, and people will do it just, I mean, literally by the tens and, and twenty of thousands of people in America. They would spend $2,000 in the hopes of selling their timeshare for $20,000. And just, I mean, it was just drove. So they interviewed this one guy. He's in jail now. But they interviewed this guy, and he was running three different call centers in um, Orlando. And he said that in a six-month period of time, they took in $24 million. Million dollars. Scamming people. On the internet, this and that, da, da, da. And a lot of times he says, the reason that we were successful is because, he said, we initiated it. Once we found out that they wanted to sell, we would initiate all the contact. It took all of the the fear out of having to 
try to sell it in an active way, they could stay in a passive position, which is what we all like to do in our human nature. And they didn't have to put themselves out there. We went after them. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the enemy does. Can I tell you that the devil is trying to scam you? He's trying to convince you that sin is going to be some sort of a blessing, that sin is going to be a better way to live, that sin, sin is a big ripoff. Sin is going to leave you miserable and broke and hurting and in despair. Sin is going to leave you feeling like a dummy. Like, why did I follow that? You've got to back up from all that and say, wait a second. I'm not going to fall for the scam. Greater is he that is in me. So while in our human nature, we want to stay in a passive role and say, well, God really loves me. He'll come back here to this pew and he'll sit down here right next to me, put his arms around me, and give me a neon light that says A, B, C, D, and E. And while we stay in a passive place, the enemy's constantly pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. This man sent. He stepped out of his comfort zone, and he sent. He, he made an attempt to touch Jesus. He didn't feel like he was worthy, but he sent men. He, 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 he initiated the process. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to initiate. The disciples of John in Acts chapter 19, they had to obey and be baptized. They could have said, well, we're already disciples. We're disciples of John. When Paul came preaching to them in Acts 19, they were disciples that he ran into at Ephesus. They could have said, well, we, we don't know anything about this. You're talking about we got to get baptized again in Jesus' name? We don't know what you're talking about, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. What are you talking about, Paul? But they obeyed. They were baptized again, and when they were, the Holy Ghost came on them. Cornelius had to send for Peter to be in obedience to the heavenly vision. The crowd in Acts chapter 2 had to gather around the upper room and inquire and ask the apostle Peter, what must I do to be saved? I'm thankful that people are still asking, what must I do to be saved? People are still sending messages up to heaven through their prayers and saying, God, I'm tired of living like this. I'm going to tell you what, you can in your prayers tell God exactly how you feel. I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of being a loser. You have called me. I'm supposed to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I'm supposed to be the head, not the tail. I'm supposed to be the lender and not the borrower. I'm tired of living life underneath all of this pressure and stress and strife. I'm ready to get on top of the curb, God. I need you to come into my life, and I'm going to make up my mind that whatever it takes, I'm willing to pay the price. You can go ahead and tell God all about it. He's not going to reject you for being too bold. Don't be afraid to initiate. Don't be afraid to sin. This is what he did. i got to hurry. My time's going the next thing is that he spoke. Sometimes we're afraid to speak because we don't want to say the wrong thing. I heard about a young man preaching for the very first time. He stood before the people as the moments passed and he was just froze. He didn't know what to say and at last he opened his mouth slowly and he began to speak. He said, on the way here this morning, only God and I knew what I was to share with you. And now, only God knows. 
at a preacher's convention, a preacher got up and started a sermon with this sentence. I spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman, not my wife. As the congregation gasped, he said, she was my mother. Back home, a young preacher decided to use this line in his sermon. But he's feeling a bit uncertain that he would remember it right. But he said, I'm going to forge ahead with it anyhow. And he said, uh, I spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman, not my wife. The congregation gasped and the preacher paused, forgetting what the punchline was. After a few nervous moments, he said, I can't remember right now who she was. <laughs> Not the right answer. <laughs> I think sometimes we don't want to speak because we don't want to say the wrong thing. Sometimes people are even afraid to pray at the altar because they say, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I always can tell with people, you can lift your, your head and your, your heart and your hands and just speak out whatever's in your heart. It's okay. Whatever you say will be okay. But speak. Speak. The Bible says salvation is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. Speak. This is what this man did. He spoke. I think fear keeps us from speaking the promises. But you and I need to speak into the miraculous. We need to verbalize our claim in the Holy Ghost. I don't think we should just think the promises of God. I think we ought to speak the promises of God. Whatever you're wanting God to do in your life, I challenge you in the Holy Ghost this morning to start every morning when you get up. I don't care if it's when you're in the shower or whenever you're getting ready or whatever your routine is. You're eating cereal, breakfast, on your way to work. I want you to start speaking the promises of God. Saying, God, you promised me that I'd have this and that, and I believe you, and I believe your word. So I thank you in advance, God. I thank you for what you're going to do in my life today. I thank you that you're going to lead me to somebody that wants to know the plan of salvation. I thank you, God, that you're going to bless me. You're a blesser and not a curser, Lord. And I thank you for it, and I speak it. You ought to speak every day, and you ought to say, I'm not a loser. I'm a winner. I'm an overcomer. I am a child of God. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. You ought to speak it and say, I shall be saved. I shall be healed. I shall be delivered. I claim it in the name of Jesus. Oh, I, I feel it in the Holy Ghost right now. Let's stand to our feet. I want everybody in this building right now. I want you to open your mouth. And I want you to begin to speak the promises of God. Would you do that right now? All over this building. Lift up your hands, lift up your heart. And would you begin to speak whatever you want God to do? Lord, I receive it right now in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to sit here on the sideline and die. But I'm going to come to you. I'm going to approach the throne of grace. I'm going to speak the word with boldness. I claim my salvation. I claim my miracle. I claim deliverance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
in the name of Jesus. Speak forth the promises of God right now. I shall be saved. I shall be saved. I shall be saved. You may be like the centurion Cornelius and not feel like you're worthy to come to the Lord. But the Lord is saying to you, come and die. The master calleth. You can call out to him this morning. I wonder this morning how many of you don't want to just speak it. But you want to also initiate and you want to move toward Christ. I wonder if you'd step out from where you're standing right now. Come down to this altar. If you've never been filled with the Holy Ghost or you need to be healed in your body or you need a miracle in your family. Maybe it's a situation only you know about. But you believe right now that you will initiate. I wonder if you would send heaven a message right now by stepping out from where you're standing. That's it. And just taking this small trip down to this altar you say why is it important to go there it's just a it's just a way of stepping toward Christ getting in an environment where people around you're gonna pray with you we're gonna pray one for another right now I believe God's gonna bring salvation to your house I said I believe God's gonna send salvation to your house come on is there anybody that'll go to Joppa today is there anybody that'll get a word from the Apostle Peter? Is there anybody that'll open their heart to the Word of God today and say, I believe I shall be saved. My children shall be saved. My house shall be saved. Thank you for coming. People are still coming. Press down as close as you can. Press down as close as you can. God's getting ready to do a miraculous work right now. That's it. Keep coming. I'll give you 10 more seconds. People are coming from all over the building. That's it. Just press down as close as you can. There's something powerful about this. The Bible said if two or three will gather together, they could ask in my name and it shall be done. Come on. The Bible said one can put a thousand to flight, but two can put 10,000 to flight. There's something that happens exponentially in the Holy Ghost when God's people get together. That's it. Now I wonder, under the anointing of the Holy Ghost and the boldness of the Spirit of God that is upon this place today, I wonder if you would lift your voice right now and would you begin to receive what God has for you. I receive it in the name of Jesus. I receive my miracle right now. That's it. Let it come from your heart. I claim it in the name of Jesus. <laughs>